Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Cheryl McKissick-Daniel. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Cheryl McKissick-Daniel is the president and CEO of the largest Black-owned construction company in America, McKissick & McKissick. Today, she'll share highlights of her 30-plus years of experience in the industry and give career advice to Waymaker listeners. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker. And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have a special guest, Cheryl McKissick. CEO, president of McKissick and McKissick, which is the largest Black-owned construction company in America. So special to have you here, Cheryl. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lewis, for featuring uh, McKissick in our story. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is so special to uh, be able to sit in front of you knowing all of the amazing things that you have done. Uh, can we start off by you talking about your ancestors? I think your company is 115, 117 years old and how they started in this business. Because for young people, this is just mind blowing. Yes, you are absolutely right. Because as you know, uh, most businesses can't make it to the second generation. And we are now I'm fifth generation Um, And so our company dates back to 1790 when the first slave from um, our first descendant of our family came here as a slave and was taught the trade of making bricks. Uh, His master was William McKissick. Therefore, we have this Irish name. However, (laughs) we are African-American. And he was taught to the trade of making bricks. We believe at some point he became free because he gave 365,000 bricks to a very prominent family in Tennessee called the Cheers family. Um, The Cheers family mansion is still standing. And many years ago, it was bought by uh, Saturn Corporation. And and so Saturn has uh, restored the mansion and the mansion still bears the cornerstone of Moses McKissick, the first Moses McKissick, the second was a master carpenter. He was known for building spiral staircases and gingerbread finishes on mansions throughout the South. Most notably, he worked um, at the Maxwell House Hotel in downtown Nashville which incidentally, that's where he met his wife, who was a a Maxwell at the time from Maxwell House Coffee. (laughs) And um, six presidents actually stayed at the Maxwell House uh, Hotel in Nashville. So it became a landmark for Tennessee. Now, Moses II had seven girls and then had to, you know, try for the first boy, his eighth child. And the eighth child was a male, and that was Moses McKissick III, my grandfather. Um, because they wanted girls, <laughs> I mean, sons the entire time, they named him every name they wanted to give a son every time they had a girl. So he's Moses, Edward, John, Henry, Lewis. 
he's got your name. <laughs> Third. And he and his brother, Calvin, uh, we, uh, incorporated us in 1905. And so that's where you get the 117 years. But we actually date back over 230 years. Um, and so they incorporated us before there were architectural licensing laws in the state of Tennessee. That did not come into effect until the 20s. So now these men had been in business for many years. If they did not get their architectural license, they were going to be put out of business because they were master builders. They would design their projects and build them. Um, and so they had to get their license. So they went to architecture school through correspondence. And if you can imagine two black men in the South walking up to the state courthouse to take their license, they were told and denied over and over and over again. Um, eventually, they lobbied the board and one board member um, said, listen, let's help these guys out. They're not going to pass the exam anyway. So let them let us just let them take it. Um, and so they took the exam. And, you know, I, I find this story just so interesting because there are still government officials today in 2022 who want to deny black people opportunities. Um, and this was happening now in the 20s. <laughs> so, you know, 100 years ago. Um, and it, they took their license exam and they passed it. Then, you know, of course, they didn't want to give them the license, but eventually they had to. And they became the first black licensed architects in the country with license 117 and 118 in the state of Tennessee. And both of those licenses hang in my office today. Um, we are going to be celebrating 100 years because May 22nd, I believe it is, 2022 is 100 years. Um, so anyway, the company was then passed down to my father, who was an architect, and then he had a massive stroke. And my mother, who had been a housewife for 17 years, had to step in and take over the company. And at the time, women could not get loans from the bank. Uh, that didn't happen until the 80s with the Women's Business Act. So a man could get loans, but a woman could not. But my mom was determined to keep the business because she said she had three daughters who were all either architects or engineers. And she knew that we were going to come back into the business. Well, my twin sister and I, we, we had grown up in the business with our father. He would take us to work on Saturdays from the time we were little. We would walk construction sites. And so we were very embedded in the business, but we wanted to grow beyond Nashville, Tennessee. So both of us left and worked for larger companies, vowing we would never come back and run the family business. <laughs> for me, that was New York City. Uh, my parents brought me here for a play when I was five. And I just, from that point on, I knew I wanted to live here, have my professional career here. Um, and so I feel as though I'm living the dream. At five, I said, I'm going to work in one of those tall buildings in Manhattan. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to build them. But I definitely wanted to work in one of the buildings. And so, you know, I went to work for Weilinger Associates, a, an engineering firm that designed silos for missiles and then the Turner Construction. And then one day my mom called up my boss and told my boss, 
you are quitting. Cheryl is quitting today. And then she called me and told me, you are relieved of your duties on Friday at five and you need to fly to Nashville. And I have been with the family business ever since. Wow, Cheryl. What I mean, (laughs) there's so many questions that I could ask you about that that journey. You know, as, as I'm sitting here listening to you, one of the things I'm thinking about, how did you guys survive the Great Depression? Oh, I know. We survived slavery. Right. Slavery was was, was total number one. Jim Crow in the deep south. Right. My grandfather and his brother, Moses the third and Calvin, they had uh, crews working throughout the south. But black people could not travel at night. They could not stay in hotels. They could not eat in restaurants. So they would travel by day and at night they would stay with friends. Now, if you can imagine a crew of men building a church, a housing project, and they only see their boss every other month, (laughs) you know, it was a loyalty and a dedication of the crews that worked for them. And I also have to say there was definitely the hand of God. Um, they would build churches at cost, and that was their tithing. Uh, They built 6,000 churches. Uh, And so that's what, you know, I believe the longevity came from. Um, Because most companies can't make it to the third generation. I think it's like 4%. Right. Here we are, fifth generation. Tell us about your your, your academic journey, Cheryl. I mean, how did you prepare yourself to sort of do what you do? Clearly, you're super, super, super smart and intelligent. But did that just happen or did you have a plan to for this academic journey? Tell tell our listening audience about that. Well, that is an excellent question. (laughs) My my parents did not play. It was a different day. And Lewis, I don't know, you may remember, we only had three TV stations. <laughs> right. And they would go off at 11 o'clock and your parents would turn them off at 10 and tell you to read a book. Well, my parents always gave, Daryl and I, that's my twin sister, always gave us T-squares, uh, Leroy lettering sets, everything associated with architecture. Uh, we did not get dolls. We got train sets because we had to, put the train sets together. Um, and so I believe that our parents were, was, they were guiding us um, to be who we are today. Now they sent us to private school in Nashville, Tennessee and our senior year, all of our friends were going to Ivy league schools. We really wanted to go to Ivy league. And my father said, you can go anywhere you want to go, but I'm only paying for Howard University. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, his vision for us, I thought, was terrific. Because here we were, we integrated this white school in Nashville, Tennessee, um, at the age of probably six. And by the time we graduated from high school, maybe there were seven black people in a class of 100 Um, And now we're being thrust into this wonderful black experience at Howard University. And 
it was extremely grounding. Um, for the first time, I had black teachers. <laughs> and they really cared about my well-being. You know, at Howard, you became the children of the of the teachers. You weren't just a number. Um, in the engineering school, because there were only probably four or five women, uh, all the professors um, really took a special interest in our education, and they guided us. So when I graduated from undergrad, um, my mentor, Dr. Broom, he said, Cheryl, you are master's material. I'm putting you in the master's program. End of story. <laughs> you are not going out to work. And that was good, too, because we had a consortium with MIT and Hampton. So during my master's, I would spend a certain amount of time at MIT with a black professor there, which, you know, MIT and, and Howard, you know, one is the black Mecca and <laughs> What is the Ivy League Mecca? Um, and that experience was incredible, incredible. Um, Howard prepared me for everything. So I, you know, we would we would have speakers. You know the type of speakers we would have at Howard. Right. <laughs> uh, did, did, it was did a father time. go to Howard. Why, why was he insisted that it was Howard? Did he go to Howard? He went to Howard. He built the Q Sundown. <laughs> he was part of that. Um, but he loved historically black colleges and he put his money where his mouth was. Um, you know, I have two daughters. I was not successful in that. Um, but I can only tell you the experience and the grounding Howard University gave me. Well, well sure. This is so interesting to me because personally, I have dabbled in in real estate. I, I, I was a landlord uh, for a long period of time. I've, I've built houses or I've paid for houses to be built. Uh, and I know just being in the process is very, very difficult. You got to be very detailed. You got to stay engaged and be involved. Uh, and I say you got to be coachable. Uh, as uh, one of my builders told me, uh, he draws it, Lewis. I build it. All right. OK, just understand. All right. Yes. So yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really interested in this because along the way, you've heard that African-Americans are only good at this field. You, you, you've heard that minorities are, uh, for example, one of the things I've heard is that uh, Polish people are great carpenters. All right. They, okay. they do great carp carpentry work. You've heard that Hispanics are great drywallers and things like that. You've heard that black people are great bricklayers. But, you know, they, they can yes. really understand the structure. <laughs> Cheryl, is any of that true or not? No, we are great designers. Uh, you know, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm lost for words now. Um, the black guy, Peter, oh gosh, huh, related to Vernon Jordan's wife. <clears throat> um, he was the architect for Washington, a black guy. Um, you know, my grandparents, they, they built the uh, Tuskegee, now, yeah, the Tuskegee Air Force Base. They were the designers and the builders. Um, you know, we can we can think of the the black architects who built the beautiful homes, uh, designed the homes out in um, L.A. in Beverly Hills. 
uh, and his name is Paul, and I can't pull up his last name. I, I, I stumbled across him late one night. I found a documentary that was on him that he had built all these homes in Beverly Hills, and I was just like, huh, a black guy? Yes. Yeah, I have his book. Um, look at David Adjay. Um, you know, he built the African American Museum, and now we have him slated to be the architect for the Affirmation Tower, which will be the tallest building in Manhattan. And his inspiration for that building, by the way, was um, pics. He went and studied hair pics of his African ancestors. And so when you see the building, you see these spikes going up. Um, and so it's, it's the creative thinking is definitely there among Black people. And it's interesting you bring this up, Lewis, because this happens all the time. Um, one of the services that we provide on our very large projects is MWBE compliance. And, and what will happen typically, uh, a large architect will come in and say, we have to do all the beginning work because none of these MWBE firms can be creative. And it just sends me to the moon. It sends me to the moon. And I, and I say, no, um, you know, the laws in New York are clear. It's MWBE for every phase of a project, every part, every phase, because if you start getting behind in the beginning, you'll never make up the numbers at the end. Um, and so that thinking still occurs. I had a developer tell me just two years ago, he was trying to team with McKissick because we had the experience uh, with the Dormitory Authority of New York. They didn't. And then he wanted to put all his staff in. And he said, well, you work with Turner, but you don't actually do the work, do you? <laughs> like, yes, we actually do the work. We're running Terminal 1 right now. We have the lead person on the program management for Terminal 1. Um, and we're overseeing the capital program for the MTA. $52 billion, 25 people that oversee every project that's over $100 million. So, yes, we actually do the work. So, so Cheryl, tell the audience about some of the big projects that you guys have done that we all have seen but didn't know it was you. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I think about it in defining moments. So, you know, which project propelled us to the next level? Um, and so when I think about that, the first project that really took us to another level was the construction of Mega Everts College. And that's in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's quite interesting. We talked about tithing earlier. Um, for many years, I lived in Philly, but I went to church in New York. And I went to church in Brooklyn. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so my Sunday was waking up at eight, driving two hours, going to church, being faithful there. And then my first, you know, big defining moment comes in Brooklyn. So I, I think there's a correlation there. So we were in a we were uh, developing a joint venture with Turner and the president of the school, Edison O. Jackson, said, I am going to have a black lead build my, you know, new campus or I'm not building it. He did a Maynard Jackson inside out with all the elected officials, CUNY, you name it. And so Turner 
you know, because I had worked for them, I had a long relationship with them. They said, okay, let's flip the script. Let's make this McKissick Turner. So why is that significant? Because many times we uh, work as sub-consultants to these large companies and you get the comment that I told you about earlier, where you're a sub-consultant, Turner's running everything. And, you know, and, and I don't mean to single out Turner because I've worked with Skarska. I can go on and on and I've worked with all of them. But the outside looking in will say you did not run that project. Turner ran it. And even Turner will say, no, McKissick was a significant partner to us and they don't want to hear it. So now when the script is flipped and it's 5149 McKissick, um, it gives us better leverage to um, use a project in our repertoire and say, you know, this is something that McKissick actually built. We were the lead on it. Um, and so that to me was a very uh, good defining moment. It was probably a $300 million effort and it was a very successful project. And what, this was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So from there, um, we went to Atlantic Yards again in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I, I'll never forget, I go into Forest City Radnor's office and I meet with Bruce Ratner, and then I meet with the head of construction. And Bruce Ratner was very dedicated to the fact that he wanted um, people from the community, black and brown people, in leadership roles. But they had already given the arena to a large firm. So I meet with the guy in construction, and I said, okay, so you've given that away. What else do you have to do? <laughs> so he said, we, we have to move all the rail at Atlantic Yards to make way for the new arena. So I'm like, well, we can do that. He said, you can. Now, I had worked as a sub-consultant to another company for the MTA for like five or six years. And that's about all I knew about rail. <laughs> I didn't have really any staff who knew anything about rail. And this was like on a Thursday. On Monday, when I came into the office, I had these long documents. They ex went across the entire conference room, the table. And I'm like, well, what is this? And so my sister, she's like, it's about 150 pages. And they want you to give an estimate next week. I'm like, huh? <laughs> so this is, this is uh, the Howard resources kicking in. <laughs> You just, you know how to angle. If you can get through the Burzer's office and register for your classes at Howard University, you can do just about anything. <laughs> so I just got on the phone. I start making contacts. And, you know, I met with a couple of people. I got some of the best couple of good guys to come in that I had known for from the MTA. They came in. Um, we extend. We got a little extra time from Forest City Radnor. And we, we put in a proposal and a cost for the project a couple of weeks later. Um, it's kind of like one of those glass cliffs because they give you this insurmountable opportunity. Um, but I don't think they think you can really do it. <laughs> like, you asked for it? Here it is. <laughs> wow. 
Um, and so being able to pull that off, our first contract was about $230,000. But I would go to the meetings and I would sit there and, and in the beginning. So for the first year, I would just go to the meetings in Brooklyn. And, and you know, the head guy over construction would say, well, we need, you know, this piece. I said, McKissick can do it. I just kept saying, McKissick can do it. McKissick can do it. I want to say when we ended that contract was $20 million in fees to McKissick. Wow. And wow. we built, we moved all the rail for the Atlantic yards to a temporary location. And then later came out, came and built a permanent location. We moved the Carlton street bridge. I'll never forget. They were, they were like, who's going to move this bridge. I'm like, McKissick can do it. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm telling you, you're talking about hot flashes. We had to get that bridge in place for Jay-Z to open his first concert. And it was a pressure cooker. Um, we were working around the clock, but we got it done. We got it done. Uh, and so when people say, are you really working? Like, yeah, I had slept in a week. <laughs> I'm really working. Uh, because... I believe that, you know, if it's in the construction arena, I can figure it out. I'm a civil engineer. Um, it's all about solving problems. Um, and that's what I like to do. Solve. Tell us about the LaGuardia project. So LaGuardia um, uh, was the first design bill that New York City put in place. So more of a public-private partnership. And so there were a, some missed opportunities, I think, with respect to MWBE. Um, our role was providing construction management services, but our role was greatly diminished, greatly diminished. Um, and so, you know, while I'm very proud of what was accomplished out there, it's kind of bittersweet. But I can say that is when I ran into um, Jim Reynolds and Magic Johnson. So the, the governor trying to right all the wrongs because he really was committed to MWBE. At the end, he said, we've got to get a minority partner as part of the development team. And that was J.L. JLL, which was a partnership between Magic Johnson and Jim Reynolds. But because Terminal One was coming up, which was a much larger project, now Jim and Magic were in a position to uh, put in a proposal with Carlisle Group for Terminal One. Now, so they were part of it, Terminal One, at the very beginning as opposed to LaGuardia being stuck in at the, at the end. And this is where you create this ecosystem for black businesses. So in the very beginning, Jim Reynolds and Magic Johnson said, we are 30% committed to MWBE on every phase of this project. And he said, Cheryl, I want you to be our, you know, our program manager. Um, and so, you know, that was like, oh my God, this is like how it, operates in the other world. <laughs> uh, and for the first time, this is how it's operating when BIPOC individuals are in control. And I'll never forget, we were awarded the contract. We had our first meeting 
I sat in that room and 80% of the people were of color for what is now a nine and a half billion dollar new terminal one at JFK. Um, and quite frankly, this, this deal uh, at JFK, uh, it was the ability of Jim Reynolds along with Carlisle to negotiate with the city and state of New York um, to build this building. And this is going to be so impactful. Now, if you think $9 billion, $3 billion is going to MWBE and service-disabled veteran firms. And, wow. and they're not moving on that. They're not wavering on that. Matter of fact, there are penalties in place if that doesn't happen. Um, and we're leading that charge. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about Affirmation Tower that is 80% owned by Black people. Uh, we're talking about the NAACP corporate headquarters there. Um, and, you know, on Wall Street, there's this big buzz about ESG, environmental, social, and governance. So we're in our presentation. They ask us, well, who's going to rent at those rates? And we're like, everybody, because they get MWBE points for a, a line item that's probably the most expensive they have, New York real estate. Um, and so Don Peoples, who put this team together, I think he was it was brilliant um, to be able to say that when you rent in our building, you are getting MWBE points uh, for at one hundred and ninety dollars a square foot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Right. It's huge. Um, and so, I mean, these are just some of the projects. So from uh, I call it Jay-Z's house. Um, <laughs> from Barkley Arena, where we ended up becoming experts in rail, we then were able to win the independent engineer for the MTA, and we are the prime. And we have been overseeing the capital program for 12 years. 12 years. Um, and so it's probably 100 50 to 100 projects that are over 100 million, Second Avenue Subway, East Side Access, Extension of the Seven, um, all these projects. Uh, we do a deep dive and um, we look at budget and schedule and sort of do an operational audit and report into the board on each of these projects. And then we oversee another 400 projects with depending on, you know, if it's critical, you know, like a, a, a stoplight kind of report. So, you know, if it's no problems, it gets a green light. If <laughs> some problems, it gets a um, yellow light. But this is a McKissick project. And, you know, we just got another extension through 2023. So, and of course, with the infrastructure money that's coming to New York, the MTA is going to benefit greatly from those funds. Well, so these are our projects. Congratulations. So, you know, we here at Waymaker, we believe that every successful person has had Waymakers in their life. Tell us about some of the Waymakers in your life that have helped you. Well, it starts with my mother. Um, she did not have a degree in engineering or architecture, but she was a smart businesswoman. 
She was, she is, she's very strong. Um, and as much as I did not like her telling my boss that I was quitting, <laughs> it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me uh, because I came back to the family firm. And she taught me how to sell business. I'll never forget. We went down to uh, like Alabama and we walk into this the school. It's like school district the head of construction. And we get in, mom said, you're going to give the pitch today. I'm like, huh? (laughs) So this guy's sitting there, his head is down, won't look up at me. His face is like a road map. Of course, he's a white guy. And I'm scared to death. But I go ahead, because I'm more scared of my mother than I was of him. And I give him a kissing pitch. He never looks at me. Um, then he gets up. He says, come here, little lady. <laughs> Go over to him. And he says, I absolutely want to do business with your firm. And so I was shocked. So I get out to the car because my mom and I would drive everywhere. And we got to the car. She said, that's a lesson for you. Never judge a book by its cover. You are expert in who you are. And you go up and you tell everybody what we do. I don't care if you think they're listening. I don't care if you think they're interested. You have your TED talk, so to speak, ready. Your elevator pitch ready. And you tell everybody. And that's what I did when I came to New York. I had a desk with a friend in her office, 57th Street. But I told everybody my story. I told them about my ancestors. I didn't have one project in New York City, but I had projects all over the South. <laughs> I told I told my story. And people love the fact that in America, people like us can overcome. They love wow. it. They wow. love it. So, 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 Cheryl, let me ask you this question. What do you think are the key attributes that are in common for anybody who's going to be a success? What are some of those key variables, elements that I don't care if it's me, you, that people have or need to have to be a success? I think education is important because education gives you competence. Okay, so you no one can <clears throat> talk to me about construction in New York and I not be able to, to go toe-to-toe with them because I'm educated. And and confidence is like number one. I mean, sometimes, you know, there have been times where I wasn't as strong as I am right now in my confidence. Mm-hmm. But I always was able to get up every morning, shake off a bad situation, a bad conversation, a bad comment and say, Cheryl, you can do this. And so you have to believe in yourself. Um, I have to sell to my banks, the bonding company, my employees, my board, and then I have to sell business to the outside. (laughs) Um, And so that confidence factor is, I think, very key. The other thing 
is I don't focus on a lot of things. I have one or two things I'm trying to do, period, period. And I put all my eggs in that basket. If right now my number one thing is to work on the new Trans Hudson Tunnel between New York and New Jersey, that's what I put all my energy in. I attend every seminar. I talk to everybody who has anything to do with it. And I let them know I'm here for business. I think, you know, there was a time I wanted to check the box on a bunch of things for the day. <laughs> hey, eight, 90% is still an A. And so that's what I go for. And I go for the 20% that's going to make 80% of the difference. Wow. So education, confidence, focus. Focus. That's great. Cheryl, talk to your 21-year-old self now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Give yourself some advice <laughs> at 21. Uh, <clears throat> well, well, uh, don't don't waste your time hanging out, Cheryl, because New York is busy. <laughs> <laughs> but then I have to say, that's how I met a lot of people, you know, by by going out, by going to the events, by going out to dinner. Um, I would also say you can do this you, and the future is bright. The opportunity is huge. Uh just stay in the game. Stay in your lane and stay in the game. And and your future is bright. To me, it's consistency. Consistent on the things that I just told you. Being consistent with that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't worry about a whole bunch of the small stuff. <laughs> um, I, I have now learned, and I, and I would tell myself that who was 21... I have learned all those things work themselves out. But you have to stay focused on what you're doing. You got to shoot for the stars. You got to shoot for the stars. If That's you don't great. Shoot for the stars, you may not get one, but you'll be with the moon, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Final question, Cheryl. They, you are a wife, a mother, an extremely successful businesswoman. What do you say to people who said that women couldn't have it all? <laughs> uh, I say that is absolutely not true. And I'm also a caretaker to my mother. Oh, wow. So what is interesting about what happens when you have all this responsibility is kind of like you're able to take on even more responsibility. So, you know, if if I could get through having toddlers um, and at the same time running a business, um, I don't know, whatever else was out there that I needed to do, I got through it. So once I got through that, (laughs) uh, everything else is easy because my kids are grown. You know, my husband and I are in a groove. and so now everything else is easy. But back then, yes, it was long nights. You know, 12 o'clock washing clothes <laughs> and still having to catch a six o'clock train to Philadelphia. Those were every my everyday occurrences. 
Um, but I was younger then and <laughs> I could do it. But women, women, we we persevere. So, so sure. How, how did you build that capacity? I said that was the last question, but I'll ask this one. How did you build that capacity to do it all, both physically, emotionally, mentally? How did you build that capacity, that capacity muscle? Uh, um, you know, they they do these uh, attribute kind of tests. And, you know, so they tell you, like, what what are your, you know, strengths? And one of my strengths is responsibility. I just don't mind taking on the task. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And and that's I wanted kids. I wanted a husband. I love my mother and I want a business. So that's how you build that muscle a little bit over time. When I was in college, um, I was both in architecture school and engineering school, 23 credits a semester. And engineering is totally different than architecture. Engineering is numbers, calculations, things like that. Architecture is in the design studio at night, (laughs) designing and drawing. Um, So, and I was partying at LA Cafe. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> over time I just built that up I built that up well Cheryl thank you so much for this conversation your journey has been inspiring and amazing and our listening audience is going to be thrilled and motivated by this particular conversation uh-huh. so we want to thank you for joining us today and I wish you continued luck and success on all of the projects that you're doing in the city that never sleeps, New York City. So thank you, Cheryl McKissick, for joining us at the Waymaker uh, Fireside Chat. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Cheryl McKissick Daniel. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.